I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Mike from the My Wall Street analyst team. Today, we're talking about why being a private company might actually suit Twitter the rapid rise and fall of CNN Plus and what it says about the broader streaming industry, and why activist investors are now so interested in pigs. So gentlemen, welcome to the Stock Club podcast. Mike, I almost didn't recognize you there. It's been so long since you've been on the Stock Club. Where have you been? I know, I've been Dawson. I think I'm just (laughs) getting comfortable enough to let other people realize how little work I do around here. Yeah, I'd love to find. I wish this podcast was a video sometimes because I'd love to point out that Mike has broken his mic stand, which in itself is a sentence. But uh, he's kind of holding his mic, kind of like uh, James Brown at the, the at, in his heyday, really kind of shouting into the mic. Yeah, that's the you kind of get unhinged unhingedness that's about to come for the next forty minutes as well. You should get it like on a little string that comes down from the roof, like a UFC boxing announcer. <laughs> connected to the lampshade yes <laughs> like liam gallagher with the parka in the middle of the room <laughs> so before we kick off i'm sure listeners know the story but by now but in case you don't i want to remind you that we now have an extended version of the stock club podcast that you can listen to exclusively in the my wall street app this is completely free to listen to but all you need to do is download the my wall street app and set up a free account there you can also find all the past episodes of stock club there as well and get notified as soon as a new episode is posted same as last few weeks i'm going to pick my favorite elevator pitch this week and we're going to discuss it in more detail at the end to find out if it's good investment or not so make sure to jump on over to my wall street if you want to listen to that i feel like we're in groundhog uh, day here because again we're starting off this podcast talking about elon musk and twitter and look in fairness i suppose at least there's some real news or, or bigger news coming out this week earlier this week of course it came out that the twitter board had accepted elon musk's bid to take the company private at 44 billion dollars this values the company about 54 dollars and 20 cents a share of course he had to get the 420 in there somewhere and hopefully it'll end the weeks of mind games that started back when elon first uh, revealed his initial nine percent stake in the company although i suppose he could argue it started before that with his uh, series of cryptic tweets and polls kind of questioning people about what they thought about twitter mike because you've missed the last couple of podcasts i'm going to come to you first on this to see if you have any fresh thoughts or perspectives because i'm sure rory is fresh out after talking about it for a Last two weeks. Were you surprised to hear earlier this week that Elon actually went through with what many of us might have thought were kind of offhand comments and a bit of bluffing? Yeah, I was. I kind of I was the first to write about it in the breaking news in the app, and I basically called him out on it. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Elon Musk read that and was like, "Well, yeah, I'm going to prove Michael Manny wrong." <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's funny though, like I don't think there's ever been like an accusation taken less seriously. Yeah, everyone had the same reaction. Oh, he's just doing Musk things, whatever. Mm. And it was like funding secured round two kind of thing. And then he wasn't bluffing and he went and he got the money together. And then you're still like, okay, well, maybe the board is going to reject it. And then he went around, apparently did like a very convincing sales pitch to a bunch of funds that were invested, activist funds. Um, And yeah, he just kept kind of going through with it when you thought 
all right, he's going to stop now. He's going to stop now. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> fair play to him, I suppose, you know? And, like, there's 33 billion quid of his own money yeah. in it now between 21 billion in equity and 12 and a half billion in kind of margin loans on Tesla stock. So, like, I don't care how rich you are. That's he, He's going to be taking it seriously. He's, this is his thing now, you know? Yeah, I think the technical term is skin in the game. And <laughs> I think his, his whole, uh, I don't think there's a bit of skin left that he doesn't have in the game with Twitter with that much money in it. I want to get over to, the, like, the, the specifics of, you know, what's going to happen with Twitter in a moment. But, like, Elon Musk is a busy person as it is. He's obviously got Tesla. He's got SpaceX. He's got the Boring Company. He's got uh, his memes. How how hands-on do you think Elon Musk will actually be with Twitter um, if this deal is to be successful, which it, it looks likely to be? Yeah. I mean, first of all, how ironic is it that they play, they got rid of Jack Dorsey because he had two jobs and now Elon Musk comes in <laughs> and he's got like seven seven companies he's running. Like I, I genuinely don't see how it's physically possible to have enough time in the day to run yeah. the boring company, SpaceX, Tesla, now Twitter. I mean, I, he, he'll have to hire someone. Um, yeah. I think it would be like Elon level trolling if he hired Jack Dorsey as CEO. I think we'll hire Jack Dorsey CEO. <laughs> That's my prediction. Yeah, I think I think I think Dorsey backing up on backing him up on Twitter and getting the board behind him was perhaps part of the deal. Yeah. Well, yeah, I that mean, was really interesting. What did Jack Dorsey said something like Elon is the singular solution he trusts for running the company. Like that that's a pretty big endorsement. <laughs> yeah, I think Jack Dorsey is kind of pushing the Twitter shouldn't really be a company for profit. It should be kind of a public service as well. I think mm. He mentioned some codswallop about protocols and Bitcoin and wokeness and Web3 and stuff. But like, I think Musk and Dorsey kind of might be kindred spirits there and that they see Twitter having a higher purpose than just being an ad machine. Yeah. So like, <laughs> it would be very ironic, but I think maybe he could hire Jack Dorsey as CEO, which well, would also that- be the worst job in the world to work for Elon Musk. Yeah, I'd say so. And that'll be Jack Dorsey's third time coming back to Twitter. Like, <laughs> the, the man, the, there must be a revolving door in the front of Twitter HQ. But that kind of aspect, I think, of, of Twitter being more than a company, you know, it's something we've touched on a little bit before, or you've talked about it quite a lot. Like, there was a there was a time when the United States was pretty much being run on this platform. There's always been kind of this divorce reality between the kind of market value and the the business fundamentals of Twitter and then the cultural impact this company has, which is, you know, arguably equally as large as Facebook, definitely in the Western world or the English speaking world. Twitter is now going private, obviously, or or will go private as part of this deal. Rory, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing for a company like Twitter? I think that what Musk saw is what a lot of people saw was that Twitter had never really figured out the advertising model. Um, and this kind of goes way, way back to the days of even before they even had an ad product when um, when DeCoslo was still running the company and they couldn't quite get the the self uh, the self serve advertising model quite correct when Facebook had kind of launched that model very successfully. And it comes back to a couple. There's a number of kind of intrinsic elements to Twitter that make it not a great place to advertise. The first is just the way that people use Twitter. If you know, if you were to think about a comparison like Instagram, uh, when people are on Instagram, they tend to be kind of you know taking a bit of time out, kind of chilling, kind of you know just wasting some time essentially, and looking at kind of pretty pictures, and then they see a pretty picture of something that might look 
nice in their house and it's very mm. quick to get some direct response advertising in there and for people to click on that suddenly they're they're heading down a, a sales tunnel where they could potentially convert and that's very appealing to advertisers to grab people at that point the problem with twitter is people usually kind of rage scroll down through twitter uh, <laughs> kind of trying to consume as much anger or news as they possibly can and that and, and so you kind of just advertisements are just kind of getting in the way of that they're not uh they're not heightening the the experience in any way. In addition, um, in addition to the rage, Rory, there's also such nonsense on Twitter. I was thinking, I think I saw a tweet where somebody uh, wrote, you know, that tweet that comes up every so often, it's like, you're telling me a, fr- a shrimp fried this rice. Yeah. I was like, there is no way an advertiser can be creative enough to, to create a nod out of that. Yeah. Uh, what, you, what you're saying, Rory, is that you can't monetize hate. Oh, I mean, you can. Facebook's have done it very, very successfully. <laughs> no, I just, th- I just think the way that people interact with Twitter is fundamentally different than something like a, like an Instagram, and and that's why they never really have been able to build a direct response advertising business, which was what you know took off during COVID. What's continued to kind of interest advertisers, um, over the years is is especially in this kind of app economy that we live in, where you want people to to click, to subscribe, to, you know, to get involved pretty much as soon as they kind of know about your product. What Twitter is kind of more used for is kind of brand advertising. Um, so you'll often see, I mean, in this country anyway, anytime there's a kind of rugby match coming up or something, you'll see Guinness ads filtered all over it because it's, they're not expecting you to click through, you know, you, you can click through, but probably won't bring you anywhere. It's yeah. more just kind of get you into the mindset that, oh, there's a rugby game coming up. I can't wait to be sitting in a pub drinking a, a cold Guinness while I watch that rugby. So do you think Twitter becoming private then will kind of help, help this, it, it kind of change its model away from advertising a bit? Well, it's so hard to know what's going what's coming down the line for it in terms of, you know, Elon has kind of, I suppose, he's, um, he's voiced some very loose plans about what, 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 what a, what a private Twitter could look like. Um, See, the thing, you know, I, the thing about it is that he needs plans because he's bringing in external investors with him. You know, yeah. he's, he's having that $21 billion of equity stake. He needs to provide these private equity firms with the business plan that'll make them money. Or else he's on I, is else he's on hold for all of it. I I mean, you know, I, I I made a point in the last few podcasts. I think that like there is a kind of general consensus around the world of investing and finance at the moment that like you know just let Elon do weird stuff and money will somehow arrive at your doorstep. <laughs> you know, it's um, what it has could go wrong in the past several <laughs> times. Uh, I wrote I wrote a piece about that in the app. It's completely true. He mentions. There was a, there was a company he mentioned called Signal, and do you remember the private uh, encrypted messengers cost? Yeah, he just tweeted yeah. you Signal, and there's a public company. Buy Signal, which buy was Signal. To that be, was uh, a, like as in a buy Signal for something. Yeah, and it was like a publicly traded like equipment device manufacturer or something like crazy. It, it probably went made up like, traffic light signals. <laughs> it went up twenty thousand percent in like a week. Yeah, he does. Well, it there. kind of it, it kind of then. I suppose Twitter is the perfect company for Elon Musk because um, the kind of urban legend around Twitter's first investing deck was after they'd created it, they went around pitching it to investors with just step one, invent Twitter, step two, question mark, step three, profit. And that was their entire <laughs> deck. So uh, this this could be really a marriage made in heaven. 
and I thought yeah. SoftBank's deck was uh, out there. Um, yeah, look, I think I think this is a story again, as we've mentioned the last few weeks. By the time this episode goes live, so much might have changed already. But I think one one interesting thing coming out about this is that since the news came out on Monday, there have been a couple of reports coming out, um, and I'm not sure how much weight to put behind these, but there have been reports that there's a significant number of Twitter employees that are really, really not happy with this new owner. Could this be a big issue for Musk? Do you think, Mike? You know, we've talked a lot about in the podcast about you know labor challenges in the US and you know I imagine a lot of Twitter employees are are very highly skilled workers but also probably lean to a specific uh, side of the divide um in terms of politics and and kind of outlook on life um do you think it could be an issue that Twitter will face that you know there's a bit of an internal revolt over Musk taking the reins Oh for sure and it's not just employees I, I read there that there was a huge deactivation in users as well yeah. it was very like targeted so there was like i think Katy perry was one of them she lost nine hundred thousand followers when the deal was announced and mm. then it was a, a conservative politician in america gained ninety thousand followers yeah on the same day and it's like it's kind of this worrying slant of well when elon comes in now twitter is back for us all yeah you know, right wingers is the anti woke police and all this. Um, yeah, like what you have to realize now is that Elon Musk can't touch this company for like probably six to nine months until the deal fully goes through. So he can't and, and, touch it, but does that mean he won't touch it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> when has when has legal stuff ever stopped him? Anything really? Um, but yeah, I think a lot of like the CEO has said that it's just business as usual until yeah. until the deal goes through yeah um, absolutely an interesting few months ahead of us i think in in terms sure. of that um well, interesting week because as has always happened with this podcast twitter's earnings are coming out after we record but before we publish so like maybe that was a factor too in what sped up the deal yeah i think <laughs> i think musk did like crazy little uh due diligence behind this deal in terms of financials and stuff yeah, Maybe the Twitter board were looking at this quarter's results or the year ahead, and they were like, "Yeah, just sell this as fast as possible and get rid of it." Yeah, it's I also trading um, way down on the acquisition price now. It's been kind of falling for a couple of days, so uh, there is a substantial amount of market participants who clearly don't believe this deal is going to go ahead. And um, at a, one point, it was at a thirteen percent premium or something. Wow. Well, look, definitely want to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. Hopefully not next week, though. Um, let's move on. Uh, and, and to repeat again another theme from last week, we spoke about Netflix and all the troubles it was facing last week with regards to its falling subscriber numbers. And one of the big questions I had was, is this a Netflix-specific issue or is this kind of falling numbers indicative of the wider streaming industry? Well, at the end of last week, another story came out that's somewhat related to this, I think. So CNN announced that it was shutting down its streaming service, the inventively named CNN. And plus, after only after only thirty days being launched, it was a tough job for the new company CEO Chris Licht to announce to the four hundred full time employees of CNN Plus that the service was wrapping up already. But I think wider. Rory, we've witnessed a few flash-in-the-pan businesses over the past few years. I think Quibi is one that really stands out, didn't last too long. But I don't remember one ever lasting only, what was it, 30 days? What on earth happened here with CNN Plus? Just on the Chris Lick thing, I don't even think he was CEO when he had to He's, he's coming in. He was I, only his incoming CEO. I so think, he yeah. Hadn't even, he hadn't even done his... Um, his walk around the office where he shakes everyone's hands, where he gets everyone's name. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, this is, I mean, a rather bizarre situation. Um, and we don't have all the information yet, but, uh, if, you know, it's already been talked about as a future Harvard business class case study. What you had essentially was uh, CNN's kind of long-serving CEO, Jeff Zucker, and then the head of their digital arm, a guy called Adam Morse, began work on a digital news streaming service um, around 2020. And around the same time, a guy called Jason Killard then became the CEO of Warner Media, which is a, which CNN is a subsidiary of. And the three of them essentially were all kind of bought into this idea that the, the company needed a digital streaming service and they kind of got to work on it. And the kind of, the original idea was really, they imagined, according to reports anyway, was kind of following very closely to the New York Times digitalization strategy, mm. um, which has been, you know, very successful. And uh, and and in the kind of the new digital kind of CNN would, I suppose, house journalism in multiple media formats. So they'd have their video news, live streaming, podcasting, you know, an archive of all their interviews that they've done over the years. And then, their entertainment wing, which, you know, houses things like um, the late Anthony Bourdain's work and Stanley Tucci's kind of travel shows. Uh, and part of this strategy was that CNN was more of a kind of global brand uh, than the New York Times. And I suppose if you've ever been on holiday and stayed in a hotel anywhere in the world, you know, you're almost certain to get CNN. It's kind of one of the... Yeah. The perks of being on holiday, I suppose, that you get to spend. <laughs> That's the reason I why hours. I go away. I might have different <laughs> holidays to you, Rory. <laughs> well, didn't you, like, I don't know about you, but there's always like, you know, you always have those days on holidays where you're like, do you know what? I'm tired of holidaying. I just want to lie <laughs> on a hotel bed for two hours and zone out. And usually the only English language program you can find in certain countries is CNN. Yeah. So you get a bit of Wolf Blitzer or something like that, you know. Anyway, they had hoped to reach 2 million subscribers in the first year. At the same time, Obviously, Warner Media was pursuing its own streaming service with HBO Max, um, and they thought they could, you know, offer kind of bundles on the two as well. Uh, however, in May last year, AT and T, which owns Warner Media and then by extension owns CNN, uh, announced it was spinning off Warner uh, and going to merge it with Discovery Communications. Uh, so uh, even though Zucker wasn't in on the merger, um, he actually had, a, uh, according to reports, a very long-standing and good relationship with David Zaslav, who was the then who is the CEO of Discovery and was set to be the CEO of this new merged business. So they kind of thought, you know, let's push ahead, and they doubled down on this CNN Plus idea. They spent, you know, a sizable amount of money over the last six months hiring producers. Hiring new talent, um, Chris Wallace the, of Fox News signed up, Casey Hunt signed up, Scott Galloway, who's often mentioned in this podcast for his hot takes, uh, was mm. hired to do a business show. And then there was a bit of delay in terms of the launch. It was supposed to launch in January. That got pushed back to April. At the same time, there was a bit of an acceleration in the merger plans because regulators kind of got through through that quicker than was expected. So, I mean, it was kind of on this weird trajectory where CNN Plus was going to launch like the day the merger went through, essentially, which is not particularly what you want in, no. in corporate uh, corporate dealings. But things seem to be still going fine. However, in February, uh, Zucker, the CEO of, sorry, there's a lot of names being thrown here. Zucker, the CEO of uh, CNN, who had kind of pioneered this whole thing and been its bigger backer, had to suddenly resign after it was discovered he was having an undisclosed relationship with a staff member, Alison Gollust, who just happened to be the CMO of CNN and was therefore leading up the marketing of CNN Plus. Um, wow. <laughs> so both of those had to leave basically like a month before the launch. Uh, 
So the launch didn't go off quite as planned. Meanwhile, Zaslav at Discovery had kind of come to the position that actually CNN Plus shouldn't really exist outside a broader HBO Max Discovery ecosystem. Uh, So he kind of saw the CNN side of the business, the news and the entertainment segment as just being an add-on to this singular package that you're going to buy called HBO Max Discovery. Mm. So there, so there was this, you know, absolute uh, difference of opinions on what what this is, what was supposed to be. Uh, they also weren't really able to speak to each other much about it because the merger had been agreed, but it hadn't been formalized and gone through. So legally, you know, they weren't really allowed to kind of discuss their intentions with each other or what they what they kind of wanted and. Uh, it did come across that like the new team at Discovery wasn't very into the idea of CNN Plus, but the people running CNN Plus just went, you know, whatever we're launching. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, so it launched, uh, it, it it got uh, 1,000 or 150,000 paying subscribers in the first two weeks. But early reports suggested that with, that only about four to 10,000 people were watching on a daily basis, which didn't enamor the new owners to the business whatsoever remember they're kind of running a, an entertainment led streaming yeah. business and so you know basically within two weeks the marketing budget was cut to zero there was some suggestion that it could carry on as a kind of light streaming platform for a while but that wasn't uh, taken seriously and, and so yeah they announced just kind of i think it was three weeks three four weeks after the launch that it was suspending operations yeah. There's a word I'd use to typically describe this. Uh, I'd have to use it off air, but it starts with cluster. But uh, yeah. it, it really, uh, <laughs> the more what um, a disaster. That should more, be a rom com. The more PC version of dumpster virus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like, like only only kind of really alive or well, like alive for thirty days. You know, this it still seems like a very very air, like very quick decision to make on, on culling this. I think they spent $100 million in development costs on it, whatever the marketing budget was. I'm not sure if that was part of that, but like, it seems madness to, to cut something so fast. Uh, it surely is more of a political or internal political thing maybe than a potential. Uh, what do you think, Rory? Is that kind of accurate or? So, I mean, one of the, or like I said, we still don't know what the internal politics of this all was. Yeah. Apparently, apparently the new team at Discovery Sazla was very intent on this CNN being a, an add-on for their singular subscription thing. And uh, one of the CNN Plus marketing ploys was to offer CNN Plus forever at $3 a month. So if you signed up in the first, wow. I think it was a month or two months, you got it for $3 a month forever, as long as you never cancelled your subscription. And the, this seemed to be completely antithetical to the concept that it would be an add-on to a bigger package. Yeah. So yeah, they weren't they weren't too pleased with it to begin with, and then you know saw the early figures, weren't impressed, and decided to just pull the plug very quickly. I I, I assume there was also some there was a little bit of angst over the fact that. Uh, it was launched two weeks before the merger was completed with yeah. no consultation. <laughs> Pretty bad timing. <laughs> to kind of zoom out then on this, you know, I mentioned that they spent $100 million in development costs. You mentioned that they were giving away subscriptions for life for $3 a month, which obviously is, is a good marketing ploy, but I can't really see the longevity in that. Do you think in the kind of wider streaming industry, we might be reaching a phase now where like this crazy spending on content and, and streaming content in particular, like we've seen with Netflix, who are you know infamous for their annual 
actual content budgets. Is that being reined in a little bit now, given, I suppose, the crowded landscape in terms of streaming and the wider economic landscape? Well, I think, first of all, to think about CNN Plus as an example anyway, was that, you know, it was a really kind of novel concept deep down. Like no one really tried to go down the streaming news Mm. place too heavily you know so fox had launched a streaming site but no one had gone down this kind of like let's see if we can get people to pay up mm. um for good quality journalism content uh, and you know the financial so axios uh somehow got hold of the financial projections that were based on cnn's plus's research team they believed um that they could one day attract close to 30 million global subscriptions from a total addressable market of roughly 72 million people now that's those are really big numbers um, yeah. for for what is essentially like a, a news product and like we said the the early numbers weren't great but you know f- f- uh, 150,000 paying subscribers was a lot less than the New York Times started out with it when it started its digital offering. Um, CNN Plus was also not available on Roku, which is the world, the country's largest streaming platform. So there was kind of, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that's very debatable because the, like, the numbers do kind of look soft. But again, novel concept, new thing. Um, people who were in there running it were, had worked previously at the Washington Post digital service, the people who'd worked for the New York Times digital service. So they all kind of were kind of very positive about this, whereas the bigger picture was that the the guys running the HBO Max Discovery Plus side were like, no, this is uh, this is a waste of money. They'd also apparently tried a couple of standalone streaming services with some of their properties, hadn't seen much success with them. Mm. And uh, I suppose one of the big problems as well was a key feature to this merger deal with Discovery was that Zaslev believed he could find about $3 billion in cost saving synergies between the two businesses. And, you know, he didn't see this as something worth investing in when he's trying to cut costs, not, not yeah. save costs. So, I mean, just I, I suppose your question kind of relates to the wider streaming market in, in general. And obviously, we have seen a huge influx. You know, just think about it. Was it two or three years ago? We only really had two major services, maybe three if you want to count Hulu. Yeah, yeah you've got you've got Disney obviously in the game. You've got Peacock. You've got HBO Max. You've got this new animal that's coming out, this Discovery Plus HBO Max um, thing, and it's pr- there's probably just. Uh, it's going to take a little bit of a, t- I think, I don't think the future of streaming is over. I think the future of streaming is just beginning, but there's obviously going to be a little bit of a kind of lapse where people are still on cable. They're still using linear TV quite a lot and streaming hasn't become kind of the go-to place for everything when it comes to your kind of home entertainment where people will be willing to have maybe three or four subscription services, particularly when we, you're kind of all getting the, the willies of inflation and cost of living <laughs> going up. <laughs> What do you think, Mike? Uh, I, I don't know if you've got streaming services in Siberia for the last few weeks, but <laughs> do you think we've uh, reached peak streaming? Yeah, I, I, well, I think peak subscription streaming. Um, like there's definitely scrip- subscription fatigue and people will start analyzing where their money is going. I know I was paying, what's the Sky one in Ireland? Now TV. Now TV, yeah. That was going out of my, that was going out of my account for so <laughs> long. And I was like, why haven't I canceled this yet? And I'm like, I think that's definitely a thing, but I think what will come about now over the next maybe five years is ad supported streaming is going to be the only way to go. And Netflix was kind of that last and largest domino to fall there. So from that perspective, I think we'll see a lot of 
two, three euro a month kind of streaming services where you have ads. So from that perspective, and when we think about that in terms of where will the new service be then, it's kind of, you see CNN plus going away and you're like, well, is there any other company like doing that specifically? So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have an answer for that. But yeah, in terms of subscriptions and paying 10 euro a month for five different services, yeah, that's out the door for sure. Yeah, it seems like we might have reached an inflection point where we're coming into a new phase of, of streaming. So definitely something I'm sure, again, we'll be chatting about quite a bit as we've been talking about a bit already. Let's move on then. So don't forget, if you listen to this podcast, my Wall Street app, you'll get the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of this episode. It's completely free to listen in the My Wall Street app. All you need to do is create a free account. Uh, we have some more new My Wall Street stuff to flag with you as well. We've just launched a brand new app, amazingly. <laughs> this one's called Compound. So this is the perfect way to start fan- planning your financial future. This is a simple tool that helps you to calculate the compound interest your investments will earn over time based on variables such as initial investment or the ongoing investments you're going to put in or even the length of time you are invested the Compound app takes a lot of the guesswork out of planning and makes it easy to understand how much you need to invest to reach your financial goals. It makes it the perfect companion for every investor, no matter your experience. It's completely free to download. It's only on iOS at the moment, so you can find that in the Apple App Store. I'll include a link in the notes for today's show if you want to check that out. That app is Compound. Let's move on. So, look, with all the news over Elon Musk and Twitter over the last few weeks, attention has once again been turned to this idea of activist investors and the effect that they have on companies that they get in their sightline. Mike, Elon Musk, I suppose, was potentially an activist investor in Twitter at one point, but you wrote an article on activist investors for my Wall Street app a few weeks ago. So what's your opinion on them? They, they To me, the idea of an activist investor is, you know, bad news, you know, someone coming in, rolling up the sleeves and, and gutting a company. What's what, what's the reality of activist investors in, in the modern market? Yeah, well, that's kind of, the gist of the piece was that it's much more of a gray area than people realize um like you said i think when you hear the term you immediately go to like michael douglas slick back corporate raider type yeah person who comes in guts company for parts and basically no one everyone suffers but him who walks away with all the profit i i think that has been earned in certain circumstances for sure but i don't think it's every circumstance um but Recently, there's kind of been a new slant towards activist investing, and it's all about ESG, which is in and of itself another very gray area. So we're not gonna <laughs> yeah. we're not getting a lot of specifics here. Um, but yeah, I, I think this ESG kind of thing is seen as maybe an entry point for a lot of activist funds to go and kind of have an activist campaign against a company and get their hooks in, and then maybe yeah. make changes from the inside. So. There was a story there recently, a tiny fund called Engine One. Um, they only owned about 0.2% of ExxonMobil, Exxon Mobil, yet they managed to get three board seats just basically going through that. Exxon's failure around sustainability has led to the company trade on the S&P by a mile. So through that, then, it's kind of inspired a lot of others. So, you know, Carl Icahn, Carl Icahn, yeah. the kind of, as you do, the Michael Douglas type, corporate raider so he's on he's hell-bent now on saving the pigs and he's trying, he's <laughs> oh trying to, you need to elaborate on that <laughs> so basically he's trying to get two seats on the uh, mcdonald's board yeah and his entry point is through esg and the treatment of pigs okay so like whereas engine one seemed like they were doing a good thing and looking after sustainability and stuff it looks like carl icon maybe is 
if you were cynical, looking at this as an entry point, it was like, oh, here's my way of getting two seats on the McDonald's board and going from there. So so he doesn't I, really care about the pigs. Is I that don't your... know about Carl Icahn's true feelings. About like I'm pigs. all for pigs, man. Like they're 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 <laughs> up there, top ten favorite animals. But uh, it's it. I, I'm not exactly attacking McDonald's to try to get a board seat uh, through. Yeah, I I think it just shows that like this ESG bent active investors have can be maybe taken advantage of. I suppose. Yeah. Um, while others are doing it for good too. So yeah. Again, very much a gray area. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think anyone really believes that Carl Icahn is worried about the pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Though, but the, but what he gets to do is he gets to go on and talk about it an awful lot and everyone's going to kind of nod their head because no one's against pigs, right? Yeah. <laughs> no one's like anti-pigs. <laughs> and then, you know, then he's going to go to basically any investor that, you know, has ESG in their in their uh in their perp in their in their documents and says well if you're a real sg investor you're gonna you're gonna support me right because these guys aren't doing it and i'm gonna yeah. do it so esg has kind of lent a new a new angle to the idea of active investor mike yeah and like for the good and bad you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> which which i think we've covered there yeah well look. <laughs> if you're a pig you'd be happy about it i guess <laughs> We'll just leave it there. I don't think anything more. <laughs> I don't think anything more needs to be said on that. Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, let's move on to the elevator pitch today. So again, same as usual. I'm going to get you guys to pitch me. You know, thirty second pitch of a company you're researching at the moment. I'm going to pick one, and we're going to discuss it in more detail. Then, Rory, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'm going to pitch a company that I recently became a customer of. Okay. Um, it's a business called Trex, uh, and it is the maker of composite decking furniture. Uh, for the outdoors sort of sorry not composite decking not furniture but composite decking for the outdoors so essentially if you are putting in um a new deck into your garden at the moment which a lot of people seem to be doing you can either go down the traditional timber route or lumber route or you can go down uh the trex route and trex's decking products consist of a blend of 95 percent recycled materials both wood fibers and polyethylene film so they provide an eco-friendly composite that needs much lower maintenance and improves durability okay interesting that's very apt i just painted the deck out the back and it is falling apart (laughs) 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 what is rotten to bits it's a danger to anyone on it have you any referral codes for my story i'll check if there's a qr code on one of them (laughs) (laughs) what about you mike you sound uh, like you're already convinced by Trex. Yeah, don't bother. Just Trex again. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think this might actually be a repitch. I think I pitched this like when I first started on the podcast. But um, yeah, uh, I am doing it now in the wake of kind of Netflix being this domino to fall in terms of ad-supported streaming. Uh, the company's called Magnite. So okay. it's a supply-side programmatic advertising platform, the specialist on connected TV. So if you're a streaming company... You have a bunch of ad inventories to sell instead of going to advertisers individually. You go through a company like Magnite who will kind of match you up with an advertiser who wants to buy your ad inventory. Mm. Um, So yeah, we literally just talked about subscription fatigue and streamers churning everywhere. So I think ad-supported streaming is going to be everywhere very soon. company like this could be a big beneficiary. You definitely have pitched them before because I thought you were talking about Maglite, the the company that make those big heavy torches. So uh, 
yeah, look, both sound interesting, but um, I think for my sake and for Mike's sake, I think we have to go with Trex and find out a little bit more about this company. So Rory, let's hear the full pitch on Trex. So guys, if you're not listening to us at the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you want to find out more about Trex, though, and what we think of it as a potential investment, jump on over to the My Wall Street app and you can catch up on this full elevator pitch from Rory. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer, elevator pitches you'd like us to, answer, uh, to tackle in upcoming episodes, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really, really helps us out. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.